prosecution outlined how accounting practices what fuck? What? did not What kind of likeness is that? If they were great artists, they'd be in a museum. I'm fucking fodder for cartoonists now. episode of your favorite comics podcast gutter boys gutter boys is a small press comics podcast about the ins the outs the highs and the very deep endless lows of making comics i'm your host jb with my co-host cam on this episode episode 70 the big 70 we are getting near retirement age at this point yeah we're pulling again from the hawking hills vault and this is actually the last yeah, of it, I think. The last interview from Hawking Hills. We got some mileage out of that. We really did. Shout out MS. Yeah, for real. <laughs> and all of the uh, beautiful interviews we had. On, uh, on this episode, we're joined with Emmy Guinness, Columbus-based cartoonist and current associate professor of comics and narrative practice at the Columbus College of Art and Design. Her works include Baseline Boulevard and The Plunge, both on Kilgore Books. Yeah, uh, I got to say, Baseline Boulevard, excellent comic i recommend everybody buy that book if you have not bought that get it from kilgore or uh emmy if they have copies excellent comic it's a wordless comic very beautiful and the plunge is also really great too it's but it's very different it is very different just keep that in mind we're gonna keep this intro short there's not a whole lot of news to cover this time around i feel like we went pretty hard on the we've been covering the news on our patreon the (laughs) past uh couple episodes (laughs) we went real hard on that one the last uh patreon episode was jam-packed full of news and depression. And, yeah, and depression and gossip. And Did you see the comment section of the last post? No. There was only one comment, and it said, Jesus Christ, JB, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. Yes. Uh, uh, so yeah. patreon.com forward slash gutterboys or gutterboys.top if you want to check that out. Um, we have been putting out free episodes. We have another one coming out next week, next Monday on the main feed. Uh, did we decide what that one was yet? I think we're going to put up probably the last Ramon one we did. With jazz, with jazz heist, yeah, jazz heist. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, hell yeah. Uh, but there were a couple of others I wanted to put up too. I don't know, we might extend it, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, let us know. Let us know what's up. Although those numbers haven't been going up, so <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> maybe we'll just keep them stashed away. <laughs> In fact, we're gonna take it down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah no, but. Uh, Before we do get out of here, uh, I want to lob this out to the listeners. Gutter Magazine is done, pretty much. Uh, uh, We're waiting on a Santos Sisters strip, and then we're ready to assemble it and go to print. Kickstarter, you know, enabling the blockchain, all that shit, and participating with that kind of, you know, makes us not want to use that platform, but we need to crowdfund this book. So if you all have any kind of like uh, alternate platforms or, you know, ideas, please DM us at gutterboyspod on Instagram or send us an email at gutterboyspodcast at gmail.com. Shoutouts will return on the next episode. We have quite a few. 
Um, but we do want to send a special shout out to Mike Prezado down in Texas. Uh, Mike sent us over a couple books here. Uh, Luna, number one and two. I want to say number one was uh, redone. I think he uh, redid some panels because that one did come out. And a copy of Skeleton Crew. Um, so shout out to Mike. You can find him on Instagram at Mike Prez with three Z's. So that's Mike P-R-E-Z-Z-Z. All right. Hell yeah. Yeah. Luna's great. Really, really awesome work. This was also written by one Danny Jelosevich, a guy I used to know back in Gainesville when we were living there. So it's nice to see a, a familiar name. Shout out to Danny. Hope you're listening. Uh, but yeah, thank you, Mike. And go check out his work. Mike's awesome. Uh, awesome guy. Awesome illustrator. Uh, great cartoonist. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Is that it? Do we have anything else to... Uh, yeah. I Well, okay. So next episode on the main feed, that is. So uh, we'll probably get back to doing more news. Well, I know we'll, uh, you know, like Cam said, we have a bunch of other shout outs we need to cover. So that'll go up there too. And uh, as usual, if you want to send us your work, uh, you can always DM me or Cam. Actually, take that back. DM Cam at Cam Del Rosario. Although it's probably better if you just DM the main account at gutterboyspod or email us at gutterboyspodcast at gmail.com and, uh, and we will uh, discuss it, review it, etc. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we appreciate everybody that has sent stuff in. The way I've been doing it is I've been trying to space out the post and then uh, only post it when we're going to shout it out. That way the listeners can hear the episode and then you know refer to the Instagram account and see the work. So by the time the next episode comes out, uh, we will have shout outs on the next one. Uh, so keep it coming. And uh, yeah, we definitely appreciate all the listeners and all the work you're making is uh, really cool to see. Yes, I think that's it. Uh, let's go ahead and pivot right into the interview uh, using our, our special time machine. We're going to be speaking with Emmy Guinness over in Hocking Hills. Uh, this interview took place, uh, when was it, September? No, yeah, late August, September. Yeah, 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 uh, of last year. Great interview. But uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll be doing that. So, uh, yeah, just stick around. I don't know. What, what do you want? We'll be right back. Athenium Comic Art is an original art website for some of the best cartoonists in the business. They currently represent Remy Boydell, Marie Capel France, Nicole Gu, Jonathan Hill, Emma Hunsinger, Casey Nowak, Micah Song, and Tilly Walden. Athenium Comic Art gives fans the opportunity to own original piece of art from their favorite comics and support the artists that they love. In their short time in business, they've already shipped many iconic pages out to hardcore fans across the globe. Don't miss out on your chance to own a one-of-a-kind piece of history. Check out their website, AtheniumComicArt.com, and type in Gutter Gang at checkout to receive free shipping on your first order. Again, the website is AtheniumComicArt.com, and the code is GutterGang. Rust Belt Review is a quarterly comics lit magazine featuring serialized and short form comics from some of the most exciting cartoonists in the small press scene today. Volume 1 features work from Gutter alums, M.S. Harkness, Audra Stang, and Caleb Arecchio, along with work by Andrew Greenstone, Sean Knickerbocker, and Juan Jose Fernandez. You can order your copy of Rust Belt Review today by going to rustbeltreview.org. Enter in promo code GUTTER to receive two bucks off your order. Again, that website is rustbeltreview.org. Promo code GUTTER. Tired of the same old comics? Why not try Clusterfucks Comics instead? Clusterfucks Comics is a black and white anthology comic zine featuring some of the best underground comics creators today. Creators like Adam Uter, Brian Judge, Isaac Roller, Cameron Zavala, Miguel Aguilar, Dylan Henty, Jared Cody Wolf, Paparotti, Umberto Tanella, Matthew Grant, and so many more. You haven't heard of any of those people? Well, fuck 
like you. Grab a copy and discover their amazingness today, you uncultured swine. The first three issues are available now, with the fourth issue debuting in April. So go grab your copy today at camiscomiccorner.com slash comics with an X, or follow them on Instagram at clusterfuckscomics. Clusterfucks Comics. Comics you can clusterfucks with. The Last Aviatrix is a post-nuclear adventure comic by independent Los Angeles-based cartoonist Buster Cagle. The story follows Summer, our last aviatrix, who pilots the sole surviving airplane, a nuclear-powered B-29, as she travels the ruined world finding ways to survive and help humanity while dealing with the eminent threat of the Atomborn, a rare breed of atomic wizards that want to see her out of the sky. Her mission becomes complicated when she accidentally picks up Henry, an Atomborn child who wields incredible power, and Clementine, a berserker on a quest for vengeance. Can our aviatrix survive this ruined and irradiated waste Land? Every issue can be read for free on BusterCagle.com slash comics. Paper copies can be ordered as well, but, you know, you can still read it for free. If you like Wizards or Warplanes, go check it out. Hey Gutter Gang, Cam here to tell you about Soggy Landing again, longtime supporter of the podcast. They recently sent us printed copies of the first three chapters to review and are currently posting Chapter 4 online with updates on Instagram. And while I personally haven't seen any of Chapter 4 since I don't read webcomics, I can tell you the first three chapters are really fun to read and full of weed-smoking wizards and hijinks. They've also been contributors to Rust Belt Review issues 3 and 4 with some soggy side stories, so make sure to check those out too. You can read Soggy Landing over on Study Group Comics and over on Instagram at Ian Densford or at welcome underscore two underscore soggy underscore landing. Soggy Landing, hell yeah, dude. One day while combing the beach, Ambar and Alana discovered a pair of beautiful medallions. What happened next changed their lives forever. The Santos Sisters will have you laughing from cover to cover as they fight crime, date dumb dudes, and just deal with everyday life as young women in the world. Coming in at a whopping 56 pages, this comic is printed with a four-color web press on decadent newsprint. All that for just five bucks? The number one source for underground comics in Chicago, Quimby's, says this about our comic. A style that's part Archie, part superhero, part snark, but it's all fun. And we think that's just sick. The Santos Sisters is available now in select comic book stores and online at santosisters.com. Now, back to our program. And welcome back from the break. Uh, we are still here in Hawking Hills for this episode with talented cartoonist and educator Emmy Guinness. Uh, she is currently based in Columbus, Ohio, where they teach at the Columbus College of Art and Design. Uh, they have put out books with Kilgore Press, Baseline Boulevard, and Plunge, and are a contributor to The Nib and the new Silver Sprocket Anthology, American Cult. How you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Hell yeah. So we've been asking everybody this um, just because we're here. Uh, how's the retreat been for you so far? I mean, it's been pretty awesome. I assume that's kind of what everyone's takeaway has yeah. been. Trying my best, like, not to preoccupy myself with work stuff and make sure that this is an actual retreat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Although I did go back to Columbus and teach class on Thursday. So hell yeah. Well, do my best. I do want to cover, you know, the academic stuff, but I also want to talk about your comic work. Um, you know, I told you the first night we were here, um, I just read baseline Boulevard. I'd ordered a copy from some store and had gotten a copy and it's a very powerful comic. And then that same night you were actually saying that, you know, you were trying to do comics with less words and more images. And I thought that was a very strong comic that you know, use that technique. So I kind of want to just go ahead and jump head first into that. Is it something where you feel, because a lot of your work in the um, stuff you've submitted to anthologies and so forth, it's historical based. So of course there has to be words to convey that story, but in your more personal work, you're wanting to, you know, get away from using the words you were saying. What's the, you know, motivation behind that? I think actually what I'd like to do is use less text in my history work. Oh, okay, cool. Which is not what I'm doing right now in the project I'm working on, because I'm working on a book for middle grade readers. And in that context, like, yeah, it's got an educational aspect to it. It is kind of important to give all the necessary explanation. But when I'm finished with that project, what I'd really like to be doing is making history comics where... Mm -hmm. Kind of like the the motivation behind Baseline Boulevard basically was that my history work is so wordy and I just don't think that it flows as well mm-hmm. as I want it to. Like I want it to have more emotional impact. I was sort of reading my old work and realizing like, okay, this is factually true, but I don't know if it feels true and I do want to prioritize that. And sure. so I think like if I'm making a history book for adults and I start asking myself, like, is it important what this guy's name is? Is it important what the date is? Is it important where they are exactly? I don't know that it is. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want to look it up on Wikipedia and, like, read all the all the facts and stuff, that's fine. But, like, the story that I would really like to tell when I go into these history projects is, like, the emotional stories of the people as they are happening to them. Right. And so, like with Baseline Boulevard, there are lots of facts about this life experience that I could lay out and like, you know, tangible details, but I don't think that it would make it feel any more true than it does. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not sure that those things are necessary to communicate the emotion that I'm trying to put in the book. So I'd really like to be able to play around with how I could translate that possibly into my history work. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a very different process. So a lot of the work is actually based in nonfiction and, you know, historical is that do you pick the stories or are you asked to do certain stories? So, you know, when you contribute somewhere like The Nib or, you know, American Cult, like do you is are these, you know, projects or even with Plunge, you know, that's a book you put out yourself. Are these things that you're interested in? You feel like you want to tell these stories Is it kind of a mix of both where someone asks you to tell a story. It's definitely um, motivated by what I'm interested in. Hell so yeah. like the stuff for The Nib usually or at least for the online Nib, mm-hmm. I would pitch them something um and for the print version of the nib each one has a theme and so they'll do a call out and if you have something to pitch them so when they did the scams one you know and i had been getting you know calls for pitches and emails from them being like i'm working on a book like i really can't right now and i saw the scams one and i was like on a break from my book at the time and i was already working on the american cult project yeah and i was like i don't really have time to do this Mm -hmm. but the scams theme is like it was too tempting and I knew what I would pitch them and I'm like I have to do it and so I like write them back I'm like there's this guy and he puts goat testicles into other people's scrotums and I can't not make a comic about it uh obviously and so I was working on the American cult piece and the the scams piece at the same time but yeah like with the American cult thing I 
reached out to Robin and, you know, I'm interested in weird occult stuff and yeah. bizarre pseudoscience stuff, hence the that kind of subject matter in those two pieces. But So I just pitched a couple of cults that I thought might be fun to do and got the, the green light for Oneida. And so I went in that direction. Very cool. So um, I want to kind of explore your relationship with comics starting early on, like your earliest interactions with them, and then kind of how you got to your path to where you currently are now, where Mm -hmm. you are a cartoonist who's working. I want to kind of, you know, talk about the education stuff, but I really want to focus on, you know, your journey in comics and, you know, what brought you here. So if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, I have a really non-traditional, I guess, (laughs) uh, path in comics in that I feel like most cartoonists are like, I came out of the womb with a nib, you know, (laughs) which sounds awful for moms. Don't do that. But I did not come out of the womb with a nib. I, you know, I read comics like any other kid reads comics and I doodled stuff and, you know, but I, I was not like, I'm an artist really early on at any point. And I got a degree in art history in college Incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Good. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Someone's clothes are done. Yeah, yeah there's the yeah, laundry. Yeah. Stand corrected. Uh, so, yeah, I, I studied art history in college, and the college I went to, you had a big senior thesis, like a, a BA thesis paper, and you had to start writing it at the beginning of your third year. So you had two whole years where you had to research and write this paper, and I'm like, shit, I need to pick something that... I'm not going to get sick of over the course of two years. And so I was just trying to think of things that like, can this hold my attention for two years? Can can it do that? And so I was like, comics seem cool. I could find something related to comics. And I just started reading like a ton of comics theory and developed my thesis out of that. And yeah, it turns out I can think about it for way longer than two years. (laughs) (laughs) What what was it about specifically in in comics? Uh, the, The paper ended up being actually more about adaptation than comics. Oh, okay. I ended up writing about adaptation and sort of using adaptations from comics into film as an example, since people have very strong opinions about them. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, I ended up, you know, obviously reading a ton of comics theory and thinking a lot about like what a comic is and like how storytelling functions in a comic in order to like analyze the difference between how storytelling functions in film and all of that. And then just coincidentally, the last quarter that I was in school, Ivan Brunetti was teaching a class as a visiting professor. I was like, this will be fun. I can take a comics class after reading about this for two years. You know, can't draw or anything, but um, I had a lot of fun and realized like I wasn't terrible at it. Like Mm -hmm. I definitely did not have drawing chops, but I could tell a story because I was very familiar with how comics function. Right. And like the right. language of comics and then emailed him afterwards and was like, what if I wanted to to do this for real? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, this is the second time Ivan Bernetti has been shouted out. this yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. We were talking to Alex on the last episode and, and, you know, we asked him, what are your top three Chicago cartoonists? And Ivan Bernetti was number one. Oh, so, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I really, I really am only a cartoonist because Ivan Bernetti told me that I could. Okay, that's fair. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So, I mean, you touched on feeling like you were not prepared on like a technical level. Yeah. Okay. So, at what point did that change where you had a little more, where you you developed confidence in your own abilities as an artist in comics? 
So I went to grad school at SCAD and got my MFA in their heavy air quotes sequential art yes. department. Yes. And I probably have the same feelings about the term sequential art as a lot of people do. Yes. Um, <laughs> people ask me what I got my degree and I'm like, comic books. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I can't bring myself to say, yes, I have an MFA in sequential art. It just feels bad coming out of my mouth. Yes. It's very much like academic doublespeak. Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. I mean, yeah, I also yeah. have a lot of issues with the term graphic novel, but that's yeah. a whole- Yeah. Go off, yeah. I mean, yeah, go go, go, yeah, yeah. we'll, we'll yeah. agree with you. I mean, we, I mean, we all know, right? Like, and no no shade to Will Eisner. He was like doing his best. He was, he right. was trying to do good for us out here, but yeah, like- it's just, it's just a comic book and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know just the the concept of the need to market it market comics as something like acceptable just accepts the premise that comics aren't acceptable yeah it, comics shoots itself in the foot all the time yeah like as an industry and it's awful like so many bad decisions oh yeah plus like now we're in this position where if you try to explain what you made it's like oh i make comic books and they're like oh like what's the name of your comic and i'm like no, no it's it's not like that you know like a web comic or something right or they're like oh like you know uh like spider-man and i'm like no no it's like a different thing or like you know, they're picturing strips, they're picturing capes and stuff. And in order to describe what I do, I have to be like, no, no, like graphic novels. Because that's the like that's the only thing that people outside of comics have as right, like an equivalent. Registers. Yeah, it's different. Right. And then my work gets marketed as graphic novels, mm. even though they're not novels because they're nonfiction. Right. Which is a whole other issue. Yeah. I, yeah, 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 yeah. Like it's not a novel. You would like the show, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me insane. But yes, yeah, so I have a degree in sequential art. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which was always the plan to go to graduate school. I I went to college and my plan from the jump was like I'm just going to like find something I'm interested in and then graduate, maybe wait tables for a couple years, make sure I'm actually interested in it. Yeah. Then I'm going to go to grad school and get a terminal degree and try to teach at college. Right. Which is exactly what I did. Yeah, you, you actually did exactly what you were planning on doing, which uh, a lot of people in comics, not so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So as someone who has, you know, received a formal education in comics and as someone who has since moved on to teach that, do you feel that there is something like, can you tell when someone's been to school to study comics when you're reading? Not really. Okay. Yeah. And which is why, like, I... I'm the first person to say, like, you don't have to go to school for this. Okay, yeah. You know, and I say this as someone who's devoted my life to higher ed. Mm -hmm. College is a scam. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually what we say, but, you know, I wanted to hear yeah. your opinion on it. Yeah. Co college is a scam. I absolutely and have, I had this conversation with many students about all of the reasons why you might want to go to college. Right. But you certainly don't have to. It's not like I pick something up and I'm like, oh, this is outsider art because they, mm -hmm. you know, aren't part of the academy or something like that. There are definitely things that you might not learn as quickly or like concepts that you have to figure out on your own. Mm -hmm. But like it's all figure outable. Yeah. And I mean, you have you can have access to a community of resources outside of an institution. Like you can, it's there. It exists. You just have to look for it. Oh yeah, absolutely. So what's something that you do feel like, you know, on the opposite side of that, what's something that you do feel like someone who hasn't gone, you know, for a formal education in comics could learn 
from school? Like, what's one thing you think that, like, they could benefit the most from, like, pursuing an actual education in comics as opposed to doing it alone and on their own? It depends, like, where they are Mm -hmm. as an artist. Like, certainly there are people that I'm like, there's no reason for you to to do, you know, someone who's more established or, you know, already part of a community. Maybe they're not early on their career. But for, like, more traditionally college age people, for instance, or people that are, like, just starting out. I mean, I know that I went and got a degree for two reasons, really. So that I knew that I wanted a terminal degree so that I could teach so that that would be an option open to me. But also, I wanted to learn how to draw quickly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I wanted to meet other cartoonists Mm -hmm. and become more ingrained in that community. And that's a really quick, I'm not going to say easy way to do it, because it's very expensive, Um, but easy in that there's less legwork to be done about it. And I do, like, I have friends from grad school who, you know, are are still very close to me. I have friends from grad school that have helped me get work, and I've helped them get work, and I still will contact them and have them give me feedback on stuff. I have professors that, like, I'm still in contact with. Uh, and so there is that, like, you know, quote-unquote networky aspect to it. But right. I tell my students all the time, like networking is just making friends. Yeah. You know? totally. yeah talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like we're we're networking right now. Yeah. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. We're grinding. I have this show because we networked and met at a show and talked to each other, you know. So. Right. Right. Um, uh, well, yeah, going back to like kind of mainlining a trajectory or a path in order to get to that point where you feel more comfortable with drawing these pages. Mm hmm. Because I was, I, you know, uh, I'm not a big research guy. Obviously, Cam is, but I, I did, I did read all the books that you brought with you, and I just assumed you'd been doing this, like drawing wise, for a while. Same, yeah. When you said you went to school because you didn't know how to draw, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was the other way around. Is that you were drawing comics and you wanted to get into academia, like that side, from making them? But it's that's not the case. No, it's the other way around. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, it, I've never done comics really outside of an academic context i guess it's fucking wild <laughs> and it's it's not that the two are necessarily inherently intertwined they just happen to be intertwined in my life because i came to comics while i was at college and then pursued it through grad school and immediately went into looking for a teaching job and so i've always thinking about it in that academic context. And actually, I was having a conversation like yesterday or the day before, I think it was, about influences and the way our influences show up in our work. Yeah. I think I was having a conversation with Caroline about lettering because her lettering is amazing. And Mm -hmm. I was asking her like what influences she has for lettering specifically because I'm like a huge lettering nerd and I'm like I want to see more cool lettering you know like what do you heard of (laughs) defont.com oh yes absolutely (laughs) I have a whole yes a whole imagined character for defont.com I I, in my first the first lettering class I ever taught I had pulled up defont.com and like you know pulled some examples from it and was my students and I sort of talked about the hypothetical idea of like i feel like defont sounds like a name and so yeah the 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 imaginary character is uh defont sterling attorney at law there you go (laughs) he's he's a high-powered lawyer Mm -hmm. he dresses to the nines and you don't mess with him in the courtroom yeah there you go because he will take you down it'll be a graphic novel yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so we kind of talked about this earlier in the week but with you pretty much being just 
full time swimming in comics, you know, as a teacher, do you find it hard to work on your own comics? Because, you know, every other person that I've talked to, you know, whatever they do for a job, they don't want to do that shit when they get home. Is it easy for you to want to work on comics? Is it hard? Like, you know, do you try to separate yourself from it because it is your career? It's I mean, it's it's really hard. It feels impossible sometimes. Actually, I'm going to put a pin in this because I remember why I brought up how Defont jumped in. Oh, oh sorry. Yes, <laughs> yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was talking to Caroline about lettering and she was like, I don't know. I don't I don't feel like I really pay much attention to the lettering, like, you know, in terms of influences. And I'm like, well, clearly you do, you know, <laughs> like subconsciously. And I said something to Marina about it. She's like, yeah, like a lot of stuff is is very intuitive and subconscious. And I think because I have never made comics outside of an academic context in which I was like teaching or analyzing my own work in grad school. And because I did this so quickly, I don't think I've ever really had that same experience of like not super overanalyzing like the way I approach my work and like the way I take influences and fold them into my work because I'm in the constant process of explaining my process to other people, whether that's in the context of a crit like in a graduate program yeah, or yeah. especially with my students because my whole job is explaining like how comics work. And so I use myself as an example a lot. And so I am hyper aware of elements of my process that I don't think I would ever think about if I didn't have to explain them to people over and over again. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, as far as what you were saying, like it being really hard to do comics at work all day at school and then like come home and make comics. It's really hard. And I think I think it's maybe not so much like uh, the thing is like, of, oh, this is like just more work. Because like, it, I mean, it is more work. And it does feel like I have two jobs because I sort of do, you know, it's like my practice and, and then the teaching that I do, even though in academia, it's like part of your job that you have to have that right. outside practice. But it's, it's more like... Well, there's the emotional energy thing, like the creative energy of like being in the classroom all day and like talking all day and utilizing that creative element of your brain and then coming home. And it's like, I can't write something right now. Yeah. My brain is yeah. sludge. So there's that. But there's also the the trying to separate the two things because I feel like sometimes it's really hard to take my teacher hat off. You know, I'll be looking at something to work on my book where, you know, whatever you're like looking for inspiration for layouts. So you're looking at a bunch of like other cartoonists and it's so impossible for me to not be like, oh, this would be a great example for that lecture. Like that student would really appreciate this. I should show this to them and like, you know, tagging things to stow away for later lessons. And no, no, you're supposed to be focusing on your own, own work right now. Mm -hmm. Like stop. Yeah. So it's really hard to separate. And a lot of it is just a time issue of like when it, comics take forever to do. Yes. And teaching is so much work. And I, I do feel like I'm just always working like mm -hmm. i'm teaching comics i'm reading comics i'm writing lectures about comics i'm making comics and every now and then i am able to make time to go out and spend time with my friends who are also cartoonists yeah. and we talk about <laughs> comics the whole time my life is just comics all the way down mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. which like i have no complaints but it's a very unique experience. It sounds like hell. <laughs> Heaven to me. But <laughs> It's a little of both, honestly. The duality of this podcast. Um, <laughs> yes, so 
Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about your upcoming project and then get into a little bit to process. Sure. Um, you said us earlier in the week, you've been working on this current project for about six years, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you're working on something that long, are you tearing it up and restarting a bunch of times? Is it just something that you keep going back to? What's, you know, I've never worked on anything longer than six months. Um, so I can't even fathom working on something. Of course, you have those ideas that gestate for years and then you eventually make something of it. But I'm assuming when you say you've been working on this book for six years, you mean actively working. So what does that look like? Yeah, well, I really literally did, like, scrap it and rewrite it in, mm-hmm. uh, God, it must have been 2018? 2018. I had been working on it for three years and uh, with one publisher, and then that publisher, I ceased working with them. Right, right, okay. <laughs> I will leave it there. Yeah. Um. So I was working with one publisher, now I'm working with another publisher. And then worked with another publisher and the original iteration of the book was less comics and more illustrated prose because they were a publisher that mainly published that type of work and i had talked to them like okay i'm a cartoonist so this is going to be highly illustrated but it really was like very text heavy not comics yeah exactly and it was also supposed to be 21 chapters that were very very short okay and now i'm making comics and it will be nine chapters that are longer. Mm-hmm. So the book is a collection of short stories that are all about doomed expeditions in history and travel stories gone horribly awry. Hell yeah. Um, which is great, but it also involves a lot of research. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think Ben Toll might come out here tonight, uh, okay. but you'll meet him in, in Columbus for sure. But I remember talking to Ben about the project when he moved here and he was immediately called out that when you write a collection of when you write a book that's a collection of stories especially nonfiction, you're doing the research for that many books right yeah totally (laughs) so i spent three years writing the first version of the book because there were 21 stories yeah and i was doing research for 21 stories and now it's just the nine stories because now i get to expand them out i have Mm -hmm. much more than eight pages but you know having a like a paragraph of text and turning into a comic is a whole thing and right and when i was writing the short versions there was so much stuff that i had to cut that i wanted to include Mm -hmm. and now i have a little more space for that i don't like putting text in word balloons unless it's a direct quote Mm -hmm. and so there really wasn't room for that in the original version of the book and so now i'm like going through as much primary source material as i can like digging through people's diaries trying to find quotes that i can use as dialogue and obviously that's very time consuming right and so now the the rewriting process has taken me and is continuing to take me a while. And so that's sort of how we landed at working on this for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a lot. Uh, a lot of it is just my own folly of deciding to write a book that involves so much disparate research. Yeah. So you know, all the books that I've read from you are nonfiction. Have you ever dabbled in fiction with your comics, or never? Not really. Do you no. ever plan to? You know, I'm not going to rule anything out, but it just it's never been something that I felt compelled to do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, seems like it. There's lots of reasons why it could be fun, but it's just a totally different skill set that I I don't even know how I would approach it. And I think I'm also like really drawn to stories that, you know, those like 
strange but true or like you can't make this shit up right, kind of right. thing where if it was fiction it would be like hack or whatever and so i think that i i find a lot of really compelling stuff in nonfiction and and sort of have that like well why would i make something up when i have this great story right here you know <laughs> i think i also really like the puzzle of it of like when you write nonfiction, you have so many little details and facts and everything's interconnected obviously like when you're really into history like every book you read is a crossover because mm-hmm. it involves characters from the last thing you read and then when you're writing it like all those little interesting connections aren't necessarily like important for the overarching narrative that you're trying to tell right and so it's constructing a narrative from nonfiction is really like sifting through all of the information that you have and trying to pull something that looks like a narrative arc out of it Mm -hmm. and it really feels like a puzzle Um, and i think that i enjoy that process a lot Mm -hmm. and i don't know like maybe someone who works in fiction could talk more about how maybe the process of writing fiction is similar but i just like haven't had that experience yeah so do you like the research or taking the research and putting it on the page what's the best part for you I really like the research, I think. Writing is really hard. It's satisfying when you make it work. I like the research part, and I like the part where I'm inking. And the yeah. stuff in between, where I make the ideas, I take I take the ideas, I make them a thing that looks like a story, that's hard, and that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun thinking about it, and it's fun when you're like making it look pretty, and all the stuff in between is heinous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Comparing that process specifically with nonfiction to a puzzle is fitting because, like, I don't, I'm not a big autobio uh, nonfiction guy, but I've done enough to know that, yeah, you have to take all this information and then you kind of have to pick out what's important and what makes a story. Because at the end of the day, you're trying to tell a story. Otherwise, it would just be an infograph with images. Yeah, you know? exactly. And nobody wants to read that. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be a sociopath to want that. Yeah, and I think that's sort of comes back to my feelings about really wanting to cut as much of the text as I can out of my work, mm-hmm. because I don't want there to be too much information. I, I don't want it to feel like an infographic. And like, it really is about like, what's necessary to tell the story, you know, is I think about like, is the date necessary a lot? Sure. Yeah. Because like, a lot of the times it sort of isn't. <laughs> right. And And, you know, that element of comics where you're trying to strike the balance between what information you're getting from the text and what you're getting from the images. And I feel really strongly that, like, if any information can be gleaned from the images, that's where you should put it. Yeah. Yeah, I look at my early work. And I mean, that's that's when I made Baseline Boulevard was Mm -hmm. looking at my early work and it was so text heavy. And I was like, is this a comic actually? Or am I just illustrating a Wikipedia article? Like, why does this need to exist? And more importantly, why does it need to exist as a comic? That's a question that we ask a lot about (laughs) certain books that are out there. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Like, I was just thinking about like, okay, I like telling this, these stories, but like, why is it a comic? Like, why am I not making a film or writing a play or whatever? And so I sort of figure like, if I'm going to make something... I have to make it in a way where it has to be a comic, where I can't tell the story in any other way than through this particular medium, which I guess goes, you know, brings me all the way back to like thinking about adaptation and like Mm -hmm. what comics are and how they work. But yeah, 
the infographic thing that you said is is interesting and and it's definitely something i'm like hyper aware of yeah Um, no i mean i get that just from reading what what we have available here is that obviously you're taking information that you did research on but the way you're presenting it and the way you are communicating that information through this narrative it's very clear that it's important first and foremost that it is a story being told only through this particular medium and that's why it's being done that way mm-hmm. and not kind of working like you know you know what we said earlier is just like infographics it's just inane like it yeah. doesn't need to exist right exactly like why why am i making this is it worth my time to make this is it worth someone's time to read this which is a question to never ask yourself ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's a trap i, I know traps when i see them that, that is a trap uh w- one question that i did have uh is since you your initial academic work was about comic adaptations into into film. Have you ever done the reverse where you you're looking at films being adapted into comics? I know that those exist. Yeah. And I'm trying to rem- I'm trying to think if I've read a comic that was based on a movie. Marvel did a ton like in the yeah. 80s and stuff. It was like any movie that came out had a tie in it seems I, like. I mean, I've definitely looked at comics that were based on movies, but I don't think I've ever sat down and read one mm-hmm. necessarily. Like I certainly bring that. Have you guys seen that Twilight graphic novel? No, was it, it actually has, like the oh officially licensed or something? Yes, oh, okay. it has the worst lettering that any comic has ever had. Is it like hand done or is it, it typed? Or? No. Okay. It's like Times New Roman or so it's Hell some yeah. like basic ass font. And it's like the artist didn't plan for the text to be in the panels. Mm-hmm. So the balloons are just slapped on there willy nilly. They have like an opacity, like low opacity. Oh, so wow. you can Weird. see through it. And so it's like slapped over a guy's head. <laughs> but you can like see through it. And then there's this like Times New Roman type font, you know, just some like boring serif font. Mm-hmm. It is it is a sight to behold. It, yeah, I'm going to look for it at a bookstore. Not to buy it, but to at least flip through and see it. <laughs> Take photos and laugh. Yeah, It feels like whoever made it was trolling us. Yeah, or maybe like they just weren't. Was it like a reputable comic artist? Maybe it was somebody's first time and they didn't know that shit. And, you know, those people don't put out comics normally. I have a theory as to why that is. Because there is some sort of alchemical process that happens because of capitalism. Yeah. Where the comic to film adaptation, the budget triples. The priority on aesthetic and making sure everything makes sense to that medium is there. Even the shitty adaptations. There's effort at least. Like there's planning. But when it comes to the other way, when it goes from movie to, to comic, suddenly that's just out the window. It's like a that, cash grab. Right. The priority is no longer, is this a good comic? It's how do we just spread our brand awareness through this other arbitrary medium that we've picked? Right. If I had to guess, I would guess that they found someone who was willing to accept a contract for way less money than their time is worth. Mm-hmm. I bet that they had an absolutely unattainable timeline and they just had to crank some stuff out Mm -hmm. and it was i imagine it was like very exploitative like it's just somebody had to somebody had to make a shady comic real fast basically yeah well and it seems like now you look at companies like idw and boom and you know the majority of their books are existing intellectual properties and it's like big trouble in little china the comic and it's like who yeah. the fuck wants this divorced dads you know like it's who's alien this for? versus predator yeah you know what's that the one's point a dark of this horse joint yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well i do kind of want to you know with crossover with you being an educator and also being a cartoonist at the same time, are you really hard on yourself when it comes to making your own work? 
Oh, isn't everyone though? Yeah, but are you extra hard on yourself because you see it from a more critical and like educational standpoint? <sighs> I mean, I can't compare how critical I am of myself to how critical everyone else is. I right. feel like everyone's max critical of themselves that they can be most of the time. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I'm kind of interested in what you enjoy as a reader rather than as a creator and as an academic. Like, what is it that you look for in comics? Uh, that you actively uh, are interested in reading or stuff that you are drawn to for one reason or another? Oh, I can answer this question in so many different ways. Please uh, do all of them. we I, got time. Don't worry about it. I, <laughs> well, I, I feel like the books I walk away from and I'm like, damn, that was a good comic are books that have an emotional impact that I want to be able to achieve. You know what I mean? Like if I walk away from a comic and it like crushed my soul, I'm like, I want to crush someone's soul. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, yeah. how can I like glean these powers like from this book, you know? So like that's, that's the kind of narrative that I, that I really love. And I also really love, and this is controversial opinion. I really love comics that just look pretty, yeah. which, you know, I, I know that's not everyone's, favorite thing there are a lot of people who will be like well this comic just looks pretty but it's you know not good at xyz but honestly if i fail at telling a story but my work is pretty enough for someone to just open a book and look at it and not really read it that's fine by me yeah i agree with that. yeah totally <laughs> I would love to achieve both of those things. I would love to be a good storyteller and be able to make things that are pretty. But if I achieve just one, I'll take it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, 100%. Like if somebody came up to me and said, wow, this was a really great story. The art wasn't great, but the story was fantastic. I'd be like, get the fuck out of my face. I feel like if the story is great, then you don't need that caveat. Like I've never read a story that was great and been like, oh, this art isn't very good though, because I, I feel like the art is such a huge part of the story that even if it's like executed in a way that's let's say like non-traditional or whatever if the story makes an impact then i don't really think about how the art could be better i guess have you heard of marvel or dc comics no, no I'm, I'm not familiar. Like, I'm not no, familiar with so that a long one. time ago. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying Stan because Stan Lee. No, no I, I feel like a lot of those comics like have that's true. bad writing or you know bad art and you know yeah it's the no those, no I know the comic it was just a joke those, yeah, those two things that that is true and I I think that in that like very division of labor kind of mm -hmm. system yeah, of making yeah, comics yeah. I think especially because you might be like familiar with a writer and have seen their work drawn by someone else and knowing like oh this could have been so much better if somebody else drew it like i get that impulse but i don't i don't spend a lot of time reading like big two books so I, I guess i just don't you say of, of, of course like, yeah no i mean yeah i mean this this show isn't really about that i mean i read some of that stuff we have friends that make that stuff but yeah the majority of the people we talk to it's not about that kind of stuff i i could read that stuff you've made assumptions about me they were correct assumptions <laughs> but you've made assumptions nonetheless That's and i brand, take offense baby. to this yeah. uh no but i i really don't read a lot of big two books and so i tend to think about comics just as like you know single creator comics just because that is the majority of the work that i read right so as far as, you know, 
and you don't have to name names, of course, but like the average like student that comes into your classroom, are they more wanting to make a career in the big two because that's the mainstream? Or are they wanting to do independent comics? What do you usually see with these students nowadays? You know, in 2021, what's a comic student look like as far as their aspirations and what they want out of if you had to generalize? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have uh, a fair amount of diversity in terms of like where people want to end up. And also like they're young, so a lot of them aren't really sure where they want to end up yet, which makes sense. Um, I do think that I don't see a lot of students who like their goal is the big two. But the students that I do see that are interested in that, that tends to not be their only interest. And I think a big part of that is like, There was definitely a time where if you were like, I'm going to be a cartoonist and make comic books, like the big two would be like what you immediately thought of. Of course. But the comics industry has grown so much in so many different directions that I think they're just more aware of all of the different options that are open to them. Mm -hmm. Like you could do a book with a publisher or you could do a book on Kickstarter and self-publish that. Or, you know, you could do freelance work and- you know, do a few stories here and a few stories there. Or you could have a webcomic and do it all on your own or all of these different things. Right. And so I have I have students that are pursuing all of these things at the same time, you know, and just sort of like, I'm just going to make comics and see where they land. And then I have students that are very much like, I have an idea for a webcomic and this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Or students who are making all kinds of comics and don't necessarily have like, I want to be a Marvel artist, like that is my goal. But they might be like, oh, someday I would like to be able to draw a book for Marvel of like right. you know, this specific character or whatever. Like, I, I really would love to work with this writer or something like that. So, yeah, you bring up webcomics. Would you say the majority of your students are interested in, in doing webcomics as kind of like their end goal? Or is that only like a small portion of the, the students? I definitely wouldn't say that the majority of them, that's their end goal necessarily. But yeah, all of them are very like aware of that as an option. And some of them are already doing it. And some of them have something that they would like to do. And I've definitely talked to some of them were like, I couldn't do a webcomic. That's too much pressure, <laughs> which like legit. I understand that. I guess I wish I had a more satisfying answer, but it's kind of all over the place. Right. What do you think, you know, as far as like if there was a core curriculum for, you know, comics education, you know, post high school, what do you think the biggest thing missing is? Like if there was one thing that comic educators could all get on the same page about, what do you think it should be? That's a difficult question to answer because there just aren't very many comics programs like Mm -hmm. right now i think there are four bfa programs in the country for for comics specifically if i'm not mistaken and so it's hard to look at a collection of programs and say like oh well this is what's missing in comics higher ed because comics higher ed is still like in its infancy and Mm -hmm. we're all sort of like figuring that out i do think that our approach to it at ccad one could argue against whether this is the best approach or, you know, we could be doing something else, but it's the best approach. <laughs> I mean, I think it's the best approach. Not biased or anything. Yeah, no, um, no, not at all. No. But but we do teach them like very traditional skills early on in the program, even though like we know that's not how most cartoonists like end up working like right. not not everyone draws it like 10 by 15 on bristol board with mm-hmm. nibs and like a winsor newton series 7 and like hand letters everything with their aims lettering guide like most cartoonists don't necessarily do that but i do think it's great 
to have the opportunity to construct a program where we start them off that way and then sort of more and more incorporate them being able to pull in whatever other techniques they might want to do. Like, obviously, we also teach them digital skills and some of them, you know, move more in that direction. A lot of us come to us already with digital skills and, you know, some of them might want to do watercolor or whatever. But I really like making sure that they have that mostly because they're going to school. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you can learn to make comics without going to school. But if I'm going to give you a piece of paper that says that you're an expert on Mm -hmm. comics, I want you to know the history of comics and like how this used to work, Mm -hmm. you know? And I want to have, make sure that they understand when they're doing shortcuts, what their shortcuts for, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I definitely think like there's a, I I can't sit here and say, like, this is the best way to teach comics, because there are perfectly cogent arguments about, like, why that's silly and you don't have to do that. But, you know, having the opportunity to build a curriculum for a BFA program, Mm -hmm. I really like going into the history of it and and the traditional techniques and, you know, then being able to branch out. And I'm the same way with my lettering class. Like, I teach the lettering class at CCAD, and it's not comic-specific. A lot of my students in their illustration majors, anyone can take it from any major. But I make them do it all by hand. Yeah. And it's not that I think that digital lettering is bad. I'm a huge lettering nerd, digital, by hand, whatever. But I... I do think that doing it traditionally forces them to slow down Mm -hmm. and be very meticulous and put a lot of thought into like every choice so that later if they want to do lettering digitally, they know all of the choices that they're making Mm -hmm. and can just do it quicker, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me so much of the pedagogical debates within fine art, especially in photography, this discussion of Mm -hmm. like... Do you need to fundamentally understand how to shoot film and analog first before getting into digital? Like, Mm -hmm. what is the importance of that? Why can't you just go straight into digital and learn the fundamentals from there? And all the points that you bring up about why you should start from the analog, the standard way of how it was done, is because you are more careful and consistent and decisive about the decisions that you're making when you're making those things. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that, yeah, it's skimmed over especially in comics now. Yeah. I Well, I also think that it depends on like how you are thinking about school and what the function of school is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like with the photography thing, you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to the, you know, we're giving you a piece of paper that says you're an expert. What does that piece of paper mean and what is the function of it? So, you know, maybe maybe it's like the difference between getting a liberal arts education and, and like a trade school education. If I'm – and I, I do think and – you know, have expressed to people that I do think that art school is like fair in many ways, a trade school, you know, you are learning a specialized skill to go into an interest industry where you have a specialized skill that you get compensated for. Ideally, don't work for free. If any of my students are listening to this, never work for free. Hell yeah. Nobody should work for free. Yeah. No. <laughs> that includes contests. Fuck that. Yo. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. I, yes. I could go on about that forever. But yeah, so there's there's definitely a trade school aspect to it. But, you know, most art schools do function as a liberal arts education. And I think that when you're constructing a curriculum, you sort of have to decide like what kind of education you want to give someone, what kind of education the institution you're teaching at promises. And if we're talking about a liberal arts education, 
it is important to say, like, I know the history of this and I, I understand the larger context of comics and, like, how they function culturally, historically, etc. You know, if I'm doing more of a trade school thing where I'm like, I'm going to give you these skills, you're going to go out in the world, you're going to get a job, which I think, you know, I'm also giving them skills and they can go out in the world and get a job. But there's a whole other element that I also feel like I have the responsibility to give them in a liberal arts education context, if that makes sense. No, yeah, that definitely makes sense. It's like if you're going to completely dedicate your life to a medium to the point where you've decided to spend 50K a year to go get a degree for it, I would hope you would be interested in learning how this shit was done from day one, right? Let alone how it's done now. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like I said earlier, you don't need to go to school to learn how to make right, comics. Right, right. And so, like, what is the piece of paper for? You know, what does the piece of paper signify? Does it signify that you can draw comics? Because, like, you didn't need to get a piece of paper about it. Yeah. <laughs> you played yourself. Congrats. <laughs> you just have to print your paper that you drew on. That's making comics. Yeah. <laughs> now, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but before Columbus, you spent time in Chicago. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I went to college in Chicago, okay. actually. So you kicked around for a few years. Yeah. I lived there from 2004 to 2010. So Okay, it's- yeah. Been a little over a decade since mm-hmm. I lived there. I I have a hometown that I am from, but I do think of Chicago as like almost a secondary hometown because yeah. it's where I became an adult. Mm-hmm. Totally. You know. So, um, you know, we're known for asking the hard hitting questions here on the Gutter Boys. So now that you've had experience in both scenes, Chicago versus Columbus. Are you going to ask a question? No. Uh, who that's, who that's, wins? That's, that's the question. Right. Chicago versus Columbus. Who's got the better scene? Oh, who's got the better scene? Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, who wins? Like I said, I haven't lived in Chicago in a long time. So honestly, I don't really know what the scene is there. Looking at who we have here that are from Chicago. Oh, you're talking about who has better cartoonists? Because that's a different question. Oh, yeah, no, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like oh. who has the better scene, stronger cartoonist roster? You know, Chicago scene is the hotbed, but you, you know, I'm going to throw her under the bus, but MS said Columbus is better. Okay. Oh, she's lying. She's got a little bit of hometown, uh, relocation hometown bias, I think. I get that. Okay. All right. Because if we're talking about who has the better scene in terms of community. Like, let's say. But if we're talking about who has a better scene in terms of, like, who has more, uh, let's say, skilled players. Yes. Let's say you're building an NBA roster and you can either draft from Columbus or Chicago. An NBA roster of cartoonists. I where feel are you like- drafting from? I feel like Chicago beats us out of pure numbers. There are just more cartoonists from Chicago. We can't compete with that. There's And there's so many. And wait, are we talking about? Historical everything. What's the better comic? Okay, let's. Let, because, this like, question's changed a few Chris times. What's Ware, the better comic Ivan city, Brunetti, Columbus or Chicago? Like, we can't compete with Chicago. But you look at the. Wasn't there like a lot of like, aren't there? There's so many. I thought Ohio was like this hotbed for cartoonists oh, in the past and yes. so forth. I mean, so, there were a ton of great cartoonists uh, out of. Ohio. I actually illustrated all the badges for CXC a mm-hmm, few years mm-hmm. ago, and I made them all a uh, historical comics, like a cartoonist figure yeah. from Columbus. So that was super fun. So yeah, like we definitely have some good folks uh, historically, but man, Chicago's a lot to compete with, and it's it's just a bigger city. I don't think we have the winner, fair. folks. We, yeah. we already know. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> it's okay. But no, you you reframe the question now. I can't remember how you said it. Best comic city, everything included, past, present. Okay. Future. Yeah, future. future. The future's in this cabin. The best comic city, depending on how you define it, I so what Columbus has that no other city has is the Billy Ireland. True, true. And the Billy yeah. Ireland is 
so special. I mean, we're going to go there tomorrow. Have you have you been there? Yeah, before? yeah, I've been when I went to CXC. Okay, I have not. Cam, when you went, did you cry? I didn't cry, but it was very overwhelming. And um, you, do you work with the Billy Ireland in any way? I mean, yes, and no. There's there's a lot of working. There's some working with them formally, and a lot of working with them informally. If but that I won't makes get sense. in trouble for telling you something. That I did at the Billy Ireland because oh, no. Okay, well, um, the only emotional moment that I had is they had Chester Gould's desk on display, and I just like put my hand on it for three seconds to try to suck some power out of it, and that was pretty emotional. <laughs> but I didn't actually cry. But yeah, if you work there, I wasn't going to tell the story, oh, so that's why. Yeah, you know, no. What do you, what do you think I'm going to get you in trouble? <laughs> Suspend me from the trip just tomorrow. I'm, immediately starts calling the police. I'm, I'm calling the cops. <laughs> but there is like a line. I actually had to like you know reach over, so it wasn't close enough for me to touch. You know, I had to reach over, and I knew I wasn't supposed to but I did it because I was there yeah. impulsively acted. But yeah, so it was an emotional moment for sure. And it was cool seeing all that stuff. I mean, it literally is just history. It's overwhelming. But no, I can see why someone would get emotional over something like that. Though. Oh, I've, I've seen grown men cry back there. Oh, absolutely. The I archives. wouldn't doubt it at all. <laughs> so strap in for that. It's going to be great. <laughs> I'm dead inside. So uh, yeah, I'll be good. I think. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see. We'll see about that. But yeah, the Billy Ireland is so phenomenal. And it also means that cartoonists come through there like ritualistically like you know it's it's comics mecca like if you can go once in your life you sort of have to absolutely Uh, (laughs) and so it means like living there there are all these people that i might only ever see at a show that like come through there Mm -hmm. so i get to see people that i wouldn't see otherwise kind of regularly which is like a really special interesting thing about columbus That I really love and, you know, there are always events and I guess that's true of like other major cities, but I think because the comics community is smaller in Columbus, it's like you you show up at everything, you know, and all all the people are there in the community and it's so tightly knit, like it feels like a family. I will say, so as someone who recently moved away from Chicago Mm -hmm. and was there for eight years and only really four of that was spent doing comics, while the scene, the the city is massive and it's so spread out, but the comic scene is so tightly woven together to the point where in the same room, you will have people being published by Fanta or were on Yeti Press or on any other small press publisher, but then also people who are, you know, working for DC or working for Marvel or Image, and they would all be intermingling, mm-hmm. you know, and I just never thought that that would ever happen, let alone seeing it happen in front of me. I feel like that's how that's that was my experience in Portland was everyone in the same room all the time. Yeah. And shout out to Portland. That is another big cartoon cartoonist spot. It is wild. It is the cartoonist to general population ratio in Portland has got to be the highest (laughs) out of anywhere. Is Floating World in Portland? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Dark Horse is in Portland. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many cartoonists in Portland that you meet people and you tell them that you're a cartoonist and it's not weird because they know another cartoonist. Right. Which is not an experience I've had anywhere else. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing where you don't have to explain that. I'm so You mean like Batman? Tired no, of explain <laughs> Honestly, like people complain a lot about dating apps. The thing that's the most tiresome for me about dating apps is constantly having to explain what my job is. I don't bring it up. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just say artist. That that's no more information after you, that. They, people don't ask you what that means. No, because they're idiots. Why would they know? Well, not, no. You don't match with idiots. I'm not looking to get married off a of Tinder. You what? <laughs> I mean, wild. When I was when I was wilding out on Tinder, it was definitely not to get like you know like a long term loving relationship. My sister met her husband on <laughs> no, Tinder. People can use it that way. That's fine. But I'm just, I'm just saying, it's clearly not intended for that. Um, that's all I'm going to say. I came on here to have y'all talk shit about my love life. That's why I'm here. No, well, <laughs> we clearly know you haven't heard the gutter boys then, because this is the flow of the show. Yeah, this we're go, we're going back into what's what we're about. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, where can people find you online if they if they want to check out your work, reach out to you, uh, you know, follow what you're up to. I regret to inform you that I tweet. You can, Hell yeah. <laughs> you can We're follow. We're huge posters. We love posting here at the Gutter Boys. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Uh, yeah, you can follow me on, on Twitter. I'm Emmy. I-M-E-M-I. It's palindrome. I technically have an Instagram. I don't post pictures there that often, but it's- That is strange, <laughs> by the way. You use your Twitter account more than Instagram, the visual- social media platform i feel like it's it's because i'm an old crank and also because i don't post my art all that often like it i'll probably post more on instagram when i have something worth showing that isn't my cat okay but yeah that's cool too if you would like to see pictures of my cat uh follow me on instagram hell yeah all right Uh, and you know i have i have comics on my website it's it's emmyganis.com check it out Hell yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we appreciate you putting up with us for this uh, hour-long discussion. <laughs> and uh, for the listeners out there, stay gutter. Stay gutter.